Tim Joyce. Here we are, Wednesday, man. Another day. Wednesday. And I well, I'm not gonna disclose your your age, but also on the heels of a birthday, right? So thank God for Facebook. That's right, right. I've successfully gotten two pandemic birthdays. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's true. (laughs) I'm very comfortable with my age because I I technically didn't age during the course of the year because of the whole time continuum. Exactly. It doesn't, it doesn't, time doesn't move during the pandemic. Damn it. We keep saying the, you know, we, I think we dropped our, you know, no C-19 rule. Uh, yeah. along the way. Our discipline is, um, is fading here a little bit. <laughs> and uh, I, I like your spiffy outfit. It's like the opposite day. I decided to sit outside today. So I'm, I'm loving the European, you know, the, the, the later it's, uh, you know, we're recording for everyone at 7.30 PM local Spanish time now and the sun is still out. So I just Love it. Yeah, that's great. I know I like to get a, get a little cash. I had to dress up. I had some big meetings today and I had a big shot at digital health. Or was that what episode is this? Uh, great. Um, 52. 52. Is it? Okay. All right. So, you know, getting, get, no, we, we surpassed your age, I think. Barely, <laughs> 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 barely. Anyway, um, so I think lots of stuff happening, but I'd like to actually just dive right in. Um, we, you know, one of my favorite topics um, at our Your Coach Symposium was like food and music as medicine. Um, and yeah. we have uh, another startup health, uh, health transformer joining us, Susan Bratton. So I'm going to... Letter in. Sweeter. No, I love the, the food is medicine. Absolutely. So let's see. Hi, guys. Hi, Susan. How are you? Uh, very well, thanks. How are you? Can you see me okay? No, you can't because I didn't click the right button. <laughs> now we can. I just I do food is medicine. I don't know how to work my computer or Zoom. It's <laughs> right. way above my pay grade. Yeah, the computer definitely doesn't feel like medicine some days. <laughs> the right, right. Although COVID helped us with that, didn't it? Exactly. And we, we were just saying with Jim that, you know, when we started last April, I think, officially, um, we, we had this like C-19, anybody that says it, then you have to drink or something, but we never had penalties. So now we're just, we're just saying these words, pandemic, COVID. Right. Oh. We were trying to make it a little bit of a safe zone, Susan, you know. <laughs> that we, ah, okay. That we, we didn't obsess over, um, uh, but pleasure to meet you. Pleasure to meet you. I've, I've heard a lot about you, so I'm looking forward to. Nice to meet you as well. Yeah. But be- before, um, so as I introduced before, you know, you were actually on being recorded on camera. I said, you know, another startup health, health transformer, right? Um, but maybe just for all of our millions of listeners, uh, g- give a little bit of your background and how you got to Savor. Sure. Sure. So um, I'm a recovering investment banker. I spent almost 20 years on Wall Street doing healthcare mergers and acquisitions and capital raising and uh, lost a close friend to a glioblastoma, which is a deadly form of a brain tumor. And that was really the impetus behind starting Saver Health. And long story short, my friend was told nutrition doesn't matter, eat whatever you want. And I thought that doesn't make any sense at all. But as a healthcare person, I knew that evidence was really the foundation upon which medicine was practiced. So I did research and found that it does matter and um, jumped off the high dive and started Saver Health. Okay, wow. How long ago was that? 
Uh, we launched in 2013 with a direct-to-consumer algorithm-derived meal recommendation engine. Um, so um, our database or a third party's database um, was used to select meals that were most appropriate for cancer patient symptom management. So it was patient profile, our matching algorithms, and then the database was um, was a third party's uh, recipes and then they prepared package and delivered uh, to the patients. And what we found was uh, that our lifetime value was topping out at five weeks. And when we peel back the onion, we found it wasn't cost, it wasn't psycho it wasn't quality, it was psychology. And 95% of patients told us that meal delivery signified a loss of independence and a loss of control. And so what they really wanted was they wanted to be empowered with information and resources that gave them back control, allowed them to remain independent, allowed them to self-manage their symptoms and really take agency in their treatment journey. And so it was one of those moments where I said, wow, still, it's still a really huge unmet need, but we have the wrong business model. And so we took, we kept those original algorithms, we expanded them, and then we built uh, an expert system, which today is over 50,000 unique evidence-based interventions, which are texted to the patient based on their profile, um, both clinical, but also contextual, and then of course, intent. And so we are, um, we're delivering a virtual uh, nutrition interventional um, support, uh, through INA, which is an acronym for intelligent nutrition assistant. So that's our, that's our virtual assistant. Wow. So take, take us back a little bit, um, you know, cause I think, uh, many startups and, you know, we're all entrepreneurs in, in this zoom, um, you know, but some of the biggest challenges is, uh, in my head, like figuring out, like, when do you actually start looking at, uh, we don't even like calling pivot, but like, where does it work? And like, take us back to this holy crap, that aha moment of, uh, I mean, that was fascinating, right? Like the meal delivery equals loss of control, right? Like how many times did you hear that until you said, you know what, we really are in the, you know, we're not hitting the spot. Like just curious on that journey. Yeah, well, so we took a very um, kind of methodical approach um, and we interviewed every single one of our patients that were still alive and, um, and especially focusing on those, um, those ones that were five weeks or below. I mean, we also had somebody who was with us for two years until he passed away. So um, outlier there, but we interviewed everyone and it was, it was 95% and, and it was almost the exact same story. And so I think to your point about when do you pivot, um, I think when the, when the evidence is overwhelming, overwhelmingly compelling, in a specific direction. And I think uh, so many times, I think we hear about pivots and I think many people um, jumping into the startup uh, world think, well, I'll just pivot. Well, it's not really as simple as that, right? There's gotta be a good reason. There's gotta be, you know, if you're pivoting, what are you pivoting to? Right. You don't just pivot because your things aren't working out, right? There's gotta be a, a, a reason. And so I think the, um, the lesson there is take a very methodical approach, pick apart your business in, in every which way, really seek to understand. And I gave a talk, I don't know, five or six years ago at Harvard Medical School. Um, and one of the things I said um, after reading, you know, Andy Grove, Steve Jobs, and many, many people like that, 
And they had something really interesting that I, that I share now and I shared um, in that presentation. And that is, there are no sacred cows, right? So we know when we go into starting a company, we have a belief, right? You have to have, a, it's like science, right? You have to have a hypothesis. You go in with that, um, but then you have to really let your customers um, tell you what works and doesn't work. And really right. direct the next, you know, the next moves that you make, um, because we don't always know what the real problem is, um, the yep. real pain point is. We have a we have a hypothesis, and in my case, I thought, well, these people need meals delivered. Well, perhaps the people at the upper point in the need continuum, but even those people, the minute that they could get off of meal delivery, they did, and it was that psychological reason. And so I think it's no sacred cows and being open to the fact that every single one of belief, uh, every single belief that you had going in may be wrong, yeah. right? right? And just, you gotta be willing to look at the data in a very kind of cold calculating manner and say, okay, well, this is what I thought it was, but it's actually something else. That's number one. And I think number two is um, do enough research, talk to enough people um, so that you have um, you know, a, a good sample size. Right. And observe, right. and observe, and right? It's, it's, it's yeah. funny, I was walking with my daughter today, my older one, we're talking about design thinking out of all things. And, you know, it's the, there's a road that was built and there were assumptions made of people and walkways. And then through the green, you see the paths made by individuals, right? And it's like, <laughs> well, if, if only those architects thought, you know, kind of observe, like, this is where right. people want to go, not necessarily. And so like listening and observing, like to me, it's yeah. just a, a key component of it. And I think uh, many people just underestimate it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and one thing I was struck me at just listening to you is like the, um, actually one of our last guests, um, you're gonna help me um, from Toronto, uh, talked about uh, agency. Zaina, Zaina, yeah. yeah. Zaina, sorry, yeah. And uh, agency and aging. And as she said, that was her, she said the one she's been studying, just wrote a book on, you know, you know aging in the future and what it will be like. And, and the biggest thing we said, summarize it. And she said, agency was that her, her final point is that people want agency. And that, that's really interesting that, you know, we're put, trying to put all these tools. We're trying to do designs that are thinking some way. And then we're removed. We might be removing like their control or their little bit of like, um, you know, it's almost like we feel like the efficiency of this, of what we're going through right now it's like you know we we just press a button and someone appears right, right? Like, but maybe the act of going and getting your meal or coordinating that you know might have been uh, something they and enjoyed. i think the other thing is when we think about healthcare and technology you know i think technology often the industry looks for solutions utility right right but but utility you know we're People are people, right? We're complex. Utility isn't isn't necessarily what it's all about. And so, to your your point about your prior guest, um, agency is a is a psychological. It's an emotional thing. Right. And whenever one creates a product, whether it's you know consumer or healthcare, you know that has to be factored in. Um, and it's tricky, right? <laughs> because we don't always know. So what do you know about nutrition that uh, Eugene and I don't know? Like what Everything. can you help well, <laughs> A lot. <laughs> well, um, where do we begin? Um, you know, I think, um, so I've, I've been a believer in nutrition for a long time. And um, 
So even prior to starting the company, I became a vegetarian at the age of 18. So I walked the walk, talked the talk, did a lot of reading about it. What I was struck by and was the fact that nutrition is not just about the right calories and the right nutrients. Nutrition can be used as a lever for symptom management in oncology. So, you know, if you think about the healthcare industry and you go back to the early 1960s, um, healthcare in the United States as a percentage of GDP was 5.5%. Today, it's almost 19%. And so when you think about the levers that we've deployed to reduce cost and improve outcome, by and large, they, um, we've certainly tapped, tapped them out. We've, we've squeezed the blood out of the stone, so to speak. Nutrition has a great deal, there's a great deal of, of literature around leveraging nutrition to manage symptoms, to keep people on their, their drugs, to reduce their symptom burden. There's actually things you can do using nutrition well beyond just calories and nutrients that can actually help, and I'm gonna use cancer patients, which is our first vertical, to actually prevent and manage the symptoms. And when we do that, we keep them out of the hospital, we prevent um, ER visits, we also um, keep them out of their primary care or their oncologist office because they're able to self-manage. Um, and right. so there's a great deal of, of, of literature in the world of nutrition that's not just about if you keep the right calories, you get the right nutrients, you strengthen the immune system, there's much more to it, um, number one. And number two is there's a lot more that we can learn. And I think nutrition historically, from a medical perspective, um, perhaps hasn't been treated um, with the same regard from a scientific perspective. Yeah. Um, and I think what we're seeing today because of the um, speed of computing and the power of computing that we're now able to leverage computing power to take that multivariate analysis on steroids and actually apply the same precision, the same discipline that we would if we were developing um, a chemotherapy um, regimen, um, for example. So I think not considered necessarily the hardest science and it's because it's really complex, but we're now at a point where we can. And I think for me, that's really exciting. And I think for the world of medicine and just the world of health, that's a great, that's a great thing because if we're lucky, we eat three times a day. So we don't have to twist ourselves into a pretzel, no pun intended, um, and go through a narrow network or utilization management. It's as simple as what do you put in your mouth? How do you prepare it? Um, and using that as a tool. Yeah. And just as a, as a follow-on, because you, you kind of talked about, you know, yes, uh, the science, you know, you guys are basing a, uh, a lot of your uh, recommendations. And, you know, I'd love to hear actually, what is that process that, you know, a patient goes through? Mm -hmm. But, um, I mean, there are people like Mark Hyman, right, that's been also preaching and leading the way. I mean, we had uh, at the Your Coach Symposium, um, Dean Ornish, right? So it's around lifestyle. And so there are individuals that probably along the same time frame as you've been driving a lot of this. So maybe I, you know, I, I know there's a community of docs that are also now paying a lot more attention to food, right? Um, mm -hmm. And not, you know, maybe it's not common practice today, but where do you see that going? 
Well, so yeah, so Dean Arnish, uh, Mark Hyman, um, Joel Furman, I mean, there are a number of kind of the leaders in the field. Um, where I see it going is um, it's gonna become a therapeutic intervention um, at some point in the future. And so we have things like the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. So lifestyle medicine looks at nutrition, at, at exercise, it looks at stress management, um, it looks at substance or substance abuse. So kind of those whole patient things. And it comes from the perspective of let's, let's go to the root cause analysis first and let's start with active disease, right? Cause it's in active disease, your time frame is shorter so you can follow it start to finish and see how it works versus prevention. Like if you think about the nurse's health study, I mean, that was years ago. You have to follow these people for a long time. So lifestyle medicine actually has prevention, but it also has active disease. And I think active disease is, um, is what I would call the, the, the shortest line in the supermarket to evidence or greater evidence. Right. So the lifestyle medicine, the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, the credentialing that occurs um, through that um, that organization um, is something that's really moving this this front and center. Um, the National Institutes of Health has funded 158 million, I think, to a precision nutrition program. Um, which kind of phase one is look at, uh, looking at feeding studies. So very controlled feeding studies, specific diets, and then looking at um, biomarkers and things like that. Now, we all know on this call that there's no way we can scale meal delivery, you know, um, feeding, right? That's, that's, that's inherently unscalable, but you got to do that kind of research to, um, to determine what works for whom and why. Um, so I think we're in, I'm a big baseball fan opening day last week, sadly the Yankees lost. Um, but I think we're in the first inning of a game that goes extra innings. Um, it's just starting and yes, there is strong evidence. And yes, in our curation process, we cite every piece, every intervention is cited in the literature, but there's a lot more that can be done. And I think the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, I think the NIH, I think there is a recognition that it matters and there's a commitment to taking um, and a, a larger scientific approach to this, much like we've done in, in other interventions. I mean, my kind of mission, as we talk about in, in startup health, my kind of moonshot is I believe evidence-based nutrition should be a reimbursed standard of care that's incorporated in the treatment guidelines. So how do we get there? We get there, um, the way we get there and contribute to all of this research is we provide uh, responsive or reactive nutrition interventions to prevent and manage symptoms starting in oncology and then moving into other therapeutic areas, gather the data, at scale, analyze, stratify the data and begin to understand why this cohort of patients responds to this and that cohort responds to something else. I mean, very simplistic, but that's how you get there. And I think what the NIH is doing, I think what the um, American College of Lifestyle Medicine is doing, this is all contributing to the to kind of the same end goal. Um, the last thing I would mention, you mentioned that we couldn't say COVID, but it's already been a year, so now we can say it, right? <laughs> Um, that's I think we, that's the, the conclusion we came to with Jim that I think we, you know, <laughs> it was a safe space, but 
you know, now we maybe maybe I, and I have a feeling like, safer. But I, I'm dying to I'm dying to ask you a question too, Susan. But go ahead. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. So so I think the point is is we're um, we're getting to that point, and what COVID did is it poured kerosene on the fire. I mean all of us on this call know that nutrition matters and we've known it for a long time, but I think the broader world and the medical world either didn't believe it or didn't want to adopt it or couldn't figure out how. Well, when you look at the- um, I just, the I just found out right now, by the way, that nutrition matters. I'm, that's really good. I, I'm, um, I'm not gonna know. tell Marina that. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Um, you know, the people by and large who had the poor outcomes with COVID were those who had underlying metabolic syndrome. What is that a result of? Poor diet, um, lack of exercise, stress. And so I think nutrition really um, was elevated and that's another good fact pattern around the NIH, the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. I just think that the macro trends are now aligning such that um, right. nutrition is intervention it's gonna happen. Right, if you think, like I, I'd say, it must be fascinating right now, like that whole area of, of, you know, the situation that we're in, like the, you know, like people gaining 30 pounds, you know, on average of people that gained weight or the, I've seen these different, you know, uh, stats out there. And then the number one uh, kind of comorbidity is kind of like, it was like belly fat or something. It was like, you know, mm -hmm. for men, mm -hmm. one of the, the biggest indications of a successful, you know, kind of treatment if you got sick. That's why I'm wearing a sweatshirt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, and I've been intermittent fasting, so if I go a little crazier, <laughs> but the um, but it, it, if you like look forward for us, right? Like, like think like like I don't know, like ten years, and like you talk about like moonshots, but even kind of like, am I gonna am I gonna have the if I have the flu, do I eat a burger and the flu goes away? Like, where does the um, you know, where does nutrition go? You know, I mean, this idea does it? Yeah. You know, yeah. Do I do I eat a meal? And uh, as part of my archaeological treatment or something even more trivial than that. Yeah, right? well, so it's, it's, it's going to be a couple of things, but let's take active disease first because that's the shorter time frame to, to do the research on. So I believe that when you're- the long term. The, what's the long term? Like this I'm going to give you the short and long term. So, <laughs> so when, and when I, long term, the reason why I make that point about long term is just prevention. If you start out with somebody who's 15, you don't know, you don't know that long story for 70 years possibly, right? So right. that's, you, you gotta, you gotta go backwards into prevention eventually. Uh, nurses health study has a lot of evidence around it. So that's probably one of the best studies. But I think when, what I would like to see is when you're diagnosed with cancer, let's say you have non-small cell lung cancer, you're gonna go on an anti-PD-1, you're gonna go on an Opdivo or um, a Keytruda. Um, we know that those drugs, those immunotherapies cause GI toxicity. So the minute that you start your immunotherapy, you're going to be given a nutrition therapeutic treatment regimen that you follow just like you'd, you'd follow, um, I'm gonna show up and do my, my um, my immunotherapy, same way if you had radiation, same way if you would have surgery, there are pre-surgical things you can do, but it becomes standard of care. And so if I think about, and I'll use oncology again, the NCCN guidelines, the treatment guidelines, and if you go into that, you'll see 
question, you know, little decision trees, non-small cell lung cancer, age, you know, mutations, whatever. And it tells you what a recommended path of treatment would be. Um, if you're getting immunotherapy, you're going to get something for GI toxicity and you're going to get it proactively so that when you start treatment, um, we're setting you up for success. One of the biggest problems and one of the things I found when I did my research was that before patients even start treatment in cancer, nine out of 10 already have addressable nutritional issues. They then start treatment. And we know that 100% of cancer patients have some sort of treatment related side effect. I mean, can you think of one cancer patient that doesn't, right? right. So there's this huge problem. 80% um, of patients never see a dietitian because there's a shortage of dietitian. And what that means is, is only the sickest of the sick with the worst symptoms, see a dietitian, And even if you're at Sloan Kettering, you're waiting three weeks. So what does that mean for those people that are lower in the need continuum? They're not sick enough to see a dietitian if they're even lucky, if, if, they're, if their center even has one. What it means is that 5% weight loss can go to 15 to 20. We wanna start this proactively so that we can prevent these symptoms from even developing or developing at a lower severity level um, by being proactive. So let me, let me um, and this is probably uh, a little bit of a tough question on one side. So if I'm a pharma company, right, um, why wouldn't I want to actually invest in this? Because I can show better outcomes Yes, for my drug, but also if you're saying the hypothesis is, you know, nutrition helps and improves the symptoms around it and all of that. Why wouldn't okay. I? Why, why don't we see this happening left and right? Um, great question. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, nutrition as a supportive companion, as I said, right, improves, improves adherence and compliance, reduces symptom burden, no. extends survival, all of those things. In the pharma industry, however, as, as you know, there is, they are heavily, they're highly regulated. They are under a microscope. And so le oftentimes legal, medical and regulatory gets nervous about nutrition as intervention, because as I mentioned earlier, the science isn't the same um, as it is in developing a drug. So in developing a drug, you're probably looking at one molecule, couple of pathways. Um, in nutrition, think about micro, macronutrients, amino acids. We're not and, there. And the food value, the, the full value chain of where was things growing, fed, right? You know, what right. went into that whole process? So, yeah. It, right. And so I think from a kind of risk perspective, um, it, um, it, it concerns them oftentimes. Now, what we've done is we've created um, um, a platform that can be customized to meet the needs, preferences, and, and risk tolerance through, um, th through going through legal, medical, and regulatory and showing them the references and letting them decide what they want in front of a patient or not. Um, that de-risks it, but I think until we have um, more of the deeper science like they think about in um, drug development. I don't know if we'll see broad-based adoption. I mean, we are working with pharma companies both on the brand side. Interestingly, we're being brought into phase threes um, to help keep people on trial, right? Because if you think in oncology, um, 
you know, it's 10 years, a billion dollars and a 12 and a half percent success ratio, you'll do pretty much anything you can to keep people on that trial and, and, yeah. and doing well. Um, the other reason is because our engagement utilization is so high, we're getting really robust PRO and other real world data. Um, so it's entirely possible that they do it for that reason. And then as the science gets, you know, then they, I mean, I would like to see it prescribed, as I mentioned, alongside uh, an immunotherapy from the moment of, um, of the beginning of, of treatment, but it, we may be a ways from there. I mean, I, Jim, I got tons, so I don't, you know, I, I, hey, go, go. Shoot, shoot, shoot. um, so, you know, obviously there's a personal story on, you know, why oncology, right? But there's much more, and I think only in the last, I'll call it maybe 10 years tops, um, this gut-brain connection and gut, mm -hmm. right? It's food and processing and microbiome. I mean, you know, again, I'm not a scientist, but um, are you then seeing that, you know, nutrition and food, and yes, you started with oncology, what but I, you know, we, we had uh, Melinda from, you know, from Miami, uh, I guess last season or the season before, right? Autoimmune disease, right? And diseases. There's just so many uh, applications of all of this across the spectrum of it. A, you know, again, personal story, but even within oncology, um, there's what, 400 plus known types of cancers. If, if yeah. I'm not mistaken, I haven't even Massive. kept up with it. Massive, right? How do you get that science sort of, you know, <laughs> you know, 400 plus cancers, everybody's an individual, how do you, you still need to standardize, right? So I'm just trying to understand right. a little bit of like. Right. Well, so. Sorry, so long-winded question. question. No, no, no. I understand. So, so interestingly enough, um, when I started, I was thinking there's going to be a breast cancer diet and a prostate cancer diet. But then if you step back and think about the, the labels on drugs, right? It says 70% have mouth sores and 20% have diarrhea. You can't solve for the 70% because what about those the 20%? And so where we've started is less about the breast cancer diet, the you know, prostate cancer diet. And we're starting from a perspective of what we know. And what we know is that there are specific nutritional strategies that can help prevent and manage symptoms, maintain weight, strengthen the immune system. And then over time, when you start to incorporate other data sets, the microbiome, the genome, um, things like that, and those large cohorts of like patients, then you can start to use it more like a surgeon would use a, a scalpel, right? Which doesn't mean we're using a blunt instrument. It just means that we don't know enough. I mean, even within, let's say, stage three non-small cell lung cancer, it's possible that this person's ethnicity could determine what their um, response to diet is from a microbiome perspective. And we know that the microbiome and modulation of the gut microbiome in, in immunotherapy um, can enhance response. And so again, back to multivariate analysis on steroids, I think you have to crawl before you walk, before you run. We know that there are, there are some really important data sets that have to be captured and evaluated 
um, to move to that next that next kind of moonshot and end point. <clears throat> and so the the strategy is really let's take what what we know, um, let's deploy it in a in a precise and personalized manner. Let's gather the data. Let's incorporate other data points, and then let's again let's let the data inform next step, right? Next step, intervention, etc. Does that make sense? Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just it's such a big challenge to solve, right? And that's why, right. like, the bold entrepreneur is just a huge challenge. Uh, uh, you know, to right. your point, I mean, the discussion in pharma, um, and I'm, I'm, you know, definitely not. Uh, it, it's complex as shit, right? Um, but I, I just think it's to your point. It's still it, it is a molecule where you know again what we said before. It just it's so complex on individual reaction. I mean, I were you know while I could you know level, level, uh, levels health, right? Um, Josh Josh Clemente's uh, company, and to me the metabolic responses to for coffee, right? For some it you know it raises. Um, for others, you know, for me, it would lower it by 30 points, right? Like mm -hmm. it just, it, again, Susan, I mean, amazing that it's just a, such a huge moonshot, you know, um, and a big right. challenge. I can keep going. I'll shut up. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, <laughs> but I think back to, okay, why, why now? Why now is because back to computing power, computing speed, <clears throat> we can now take those variables in a manner that we just historically we couldn't and we couldn't it, it's way too many variables we can do it now um and we'll we'll be able to do it in the future even faster because this right it just it's getting faster and faster and more complex um we're now at a point in time um from a technology perspective that we can actually do the kind of analysis that's required um, to really under, uh, identify the signals, drill down, you know, kind of follow, follow those and, and begin to understand something which will become the equivalent of mechanism of action. But I think mechanism of action is probably dependent upon ethnicity. Um, yeah. Who knows, right? But it's, it's not just going to be, oh, it impact, you know, it upregulates no. this. It's not going to be that simple, I don't think. How do you commit? Like, so when you like, I think about diet. Like, I'm like, I'm always doing the next crazy diet. You know, like, you know, experimenting with it or thinking about it or you know, affect your mood or listening to a Joe Rogan podcast or you know, and hearing about some effect that it has. And I've never seen, you know, I've seen so many people that do take that. Like, think say versus say my like my father's generation. It was like you know what they ate, eat, what they ate or what they chose to eat was kind of handed to them and what was available, um, you know, what they're culturally did. You know, I always said like, you know, be careful who you marry because you're going to have, you know, thousands of dinners with them, <laughs> you know, not because, you know, you know uh, <laughs> not because of all the other factors, just because you're going to have to eat with them a lot. You know? So, um, <laughs> but, but is like, how do you get people? So like, you know, like if you, so if you were dealing like with a hard case, like me, you're trying to get me into your nutritional system or your dietary system, and it's, I, and I'm like, you know, I feel like, I feel like I'm probably not doing it correctly, but I have a lot of agency over it. Like, so in yeah. some way here, and now you're going to get me to comply with this. Not only do right. I terrific Great man. question. Great question. I'm glad you asked that. Um, so again, another lesson learned, um, 
when I started this company, you cannot make this stuff up. I quit my job two weeks later. My dad was told he had four months to live, multiple myeloma. Fast forward, I'm going to be out there with him on Monday. It's his 89th birthday. So he survived a, a bone marrow transplant. Wow. Wow. Um, but I went into this thinking, well, my dad has to become a vegetarian. Okay, wrong. Right. And I learned a very important lesson. It put the, the company kind of six months off track because I wanted to be out there with him, especially if, if he wasn't going to make it. I'm thankful he did. But what I learned is a really important lesson, which is you have exactly what you're asking. Meet people where they are. So many times the medical industry, the nutrition industry is, you know, telling you eat this, not that. Right. If you eat this, you're evil. Right. What, what, what we have to do, and this is part of the algorithms, is we have to meet people where they are. We have to help them eat what is most healthy and appropriate for them. And there comes in context, within the context of what they eat. Now, the reality of it is there is going there will be people like my dad who really likes to eat steak and I would probably not recommend that but you know what there's a healthy way to eat steak there's a healthy way to eat other things that aren't recommended and I think the key is meet them where they are look at their um, their eating preferences and then work with them. So a very simplistic fashion is have them put more vegetables on the plate, right? And so instead of, you know, one eighth vegetable, make it three quarters vegetable or 50% vegetable, but small right. incremental changes like that, that aren't no, because again, if we're thinking about behavior change, um, which is a bit easier, I think in oncology, just because of the, the, the how severe it is, right? How, how, um, critical it is. Um, but, but meet them where they are, help them eat within the context of what they like to eat and tweak it around the edges. Um, I think, you know, the other thing is in oncology, one of the most important things, because so many patients lose weight, this is not the time to tell a 75 year old man that he has to change his diet, right? Yep. <laughs> My goal was to keep him alive. And so keep him eating within the context of how can we do this in a helpful manner that prevents weight loss and ensures that he gets the right calories and nutrients to strengthen his immune system so he can be strong enough to make it through chemotherapy, bone marrow transplant. Um, and I think, again, back to, I think the medical industry and the nutrition industry are oftentimes like the, you know, the, the school teacher that just slaps your hand if you, you know, say something wrong. Sure. That's not the way to do, right? Meet people where they are and bring it to them in a way that has the least amount of kind of conflict or um, change in the way they perceive themselves, right? Indeed. It can't, it can't be there can't be any judgment tied to it, right? This needs to be very clinical, like this is how this is gonna help you, not, oh my God, don't eat a steak. And do you, do you, do you get tacos on Tuesday? <laughs> yeah, vegetable tacos. <laughs> vegetable tacos, <laughs> it's a bit of fun. Of course, Indeed. I love tacos. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just pondering, no, I, I'm, just, I'm just pondering because um, I, I just finished listening to <clears throat> Atomic Habits, James Clear, right? And 
you know, again, the, every, every situation is different. And when you're in pain and you have side effects, you know, <clears throat> it's like your job to be done that day is to feel as good as you can, right? And if something can help you, you know, maybe a particular diet, you're going to try it. Or right. I, I'd say, again, on the spectrum of, you know, knocking with pre-chronic or healthy individuals, you know, um, Marina hates the word diet because ultimately those are short-lived, right? Um, and it's about the behavior. And the reason I brought up James Clear, it's like, okay, I, the one thing I took out of that book is it's the behavior changes about, you know, what is that identity you want to be? Yes. And, you know, the, the stupid example, like, you know, I think twice about a cookie because the Eugene with a six pack, you know, probably would not eat it. Right? And so like, but, but you know, so uh, I'm, I'm far away from that. But again, again, I'm just looking at this as a spectrum. And that's why this, this is so complex. And it's amazing what, what you're doing with, uh, with Saber uh, in this. And I think you're, you know, you're raising a really good point. Um, I think in oncology, in autoimmune conditions, in post-MI, cardio, you know, cardio patients, I think there is a higher level of motivation because the pain yep. point and the fear point is very, very yep. high. Right. Um, when you get into prevention and you get into less severe chronic conditions, it's more complex. And this is where I think, you know, behavioral psychology becomes really, really important in thinking about, um, and this is something that I read a lot about, I'm fascinated um, by kind of, um, arc, you know, developing patient archetypes to use a word that we use in the farm industry a lot, but, you know, identifying those, those predictors of what are the variables that cause this person to make decisions versus that one. There's an yeah. interesting company in Europe that, um, um, that, that does these, these surveys and they basically, you know, can, can assess, um, what are the, what are the things, what are the variables that are going to, you know, impact this person versus that person. But again, I think that's another science that, um, that we have a lot more to learn about, but at the end of the day, and nobody's figured it out because if they had, why would we have so many diabetic and obese people in the world? It's not like we don't know what we should be eating. And so I think, I think we need to know, we need to spend a lot more time in, um, in behavioral psychology. Um, I think the other thing is the kind of demonization of, of specific types of food. Um, I don't think that helps us with right. um with behavior modification i think we i think as an industry and i'm you know stating the blindingly obvious but meet people where they are don't make them feel bad about themselves because that's right. not going to help them make it right i mean yeah you know a lot of it comes down to like with i like i, I run a adherence company for injectable medications and um and a lot of we find the non-adherence issues come down to belief you know, do people believe that the medication is having the effect? Do they believe it's maybe giving them a side effect? Do they believe that they'll be better um, off on it? And if they, if their belief is shaken, then they um, are very likely to not take their medication. That's almost more foundational than did you forget? Or, you know, do you not practically know how to do it or something? Yeah. You know, That's really interesting. And if you give them, if you provide them with, okay, so I believe this medication is giving me a side effect, which is awful. Um, 
Do you find that, or have you looked at if, if they are provided some sort of solution um, that is either, you know, another medication or some sort of um, guidance support intervention, do you find that that will keep them on? I'm just curious what your experience is. No, 100%, 100%, you know, it's foundational. Like you have, like even, I remember early on in my career, we were working with like the hepatitis C drugs that are like the interference. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, you know, the nurses had an incredible nutritional and kind of supplementary kind of knowledge and capabilities. And it was only for them that they would manage the horrific side effects of intron A, you know, or, you know interferon. Um, they would get on the phone with them and talk with them about really coach it. And they were doing kind of a version of what you were doing, but this is back ages and ages ago. Um, and that if it wasn't for those nurses thinking about their diet and their drinking and their hydration and, and, and just giving a bit of confidence um, that they could get through the side effect. I mean, that's a severe side effect, you know? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, and the other thing that you bring up that I think is also really important in healthcare, um, and that is right intervention, right time, right resource, right setting. So we're a virtual SMS-based solution. They're both clinical and contextual variables that determine what solution, what intervention, what um, resource is appropriate. And so again, I'll use my mom and dad as an example. So if you go on that continuum, you've got virtual, you have telehealth, you have the physician and you have the hospital. So from a clinical perspective, and we've got kind of escalation rules that say, if a severity level hits a certain point, it's got to go to the medical team. Okay, equally, you know, as the, and that would probably be my dad's case because he blows up my phone regularly more than my three nieces combined. My mom, on the other hand, if it was something she could self-manage, she probably would rather, rather do not even the telehealth, she'd rather go see the doctor. And I, again, meeting people where they are, I think that is also a right. component of what you're talking about. And so when you talk about the nurses, coaching them through the side effects, these terrible side effects, how do you do it? Um, it's also got to kind of meet right. the type of person they are. How do they learn? How do they engage? What works for them? Yeah. It's not one size fits all. And I know that's said over and over again, but I'm constantly amazed after over 30 years in the healthcare industry, how we try to distill it all down to one single, you know, takeaway. <laughs> well, you know, it's not that simple at all. Unfortunately not. Um, so I'm the timekeeper, but the main reason is that in a few minutes, there's the sundown. So I will sort of go, <laughs> I'll go dark here. <laughs> um, and I, I don't know, Jim, you want, why don't you go? Uh, you, yeah, so, so he said, you know, how everyone likes to synthesize something into one size fits all, but what's your, what's your one piece of advice, you know, for someone that's going, that's starting a company, so you're 2013, you're at it right now, you know, we're all coming out of this kind of virtualization of healthcare time period. What's your, what's your advice for our aspiring digital health entrepreneurs listening? Yeah. Um, Think a lot about the problem. Um, do your homework. Really, you know, really, really convince yourself that there's a real problem, a real pain point. You may be surprised that it's different once you kind of get into the. In, as I described with us, um, and if it's if it's health, just not entrepreneurialism in general. If it's health, you know, don't do it unless you really want to change people's lives. This is a really, really hard thing to do. And 
I think it's only possible to ride the roller coaster up and down multiple times a day sometimes. Yep. Stare into the abyss and think that, you know, you're done. And then two seconds later, something happens and you've got a contract that's like going to change the course of the company. Um, and I'm not exaggerating. Um, so, you know, know that you're going into doing something hard. And I personally believe if you're going into healthcare, you want to help people. And that commitment to helping people in whatever way you do it is one of the most foundational things that will get you through the hard times because there are many of them. And I think just, it, it's a touch point that you can come back to and say, I did this because, and you're right. reminded every day of that and that gets you through. Yep, 100%. <laughs> I was too cold, but yes, I love that. Um, I need to get Susan. back on that yoga mat. <laughs> Marina was just doing yoga earlier and that's that's part of the reason why I'm out here um anyways it was really really a pleasure to reconnect again Susan and Wonderful. thank Great. you for the time and it's amazing uh you know again very hard problem to solve but uh you, you you're you're gonna you're cracking it so it's um and for the ones that are viewing or listening just hit that follow subscribe you know we're still getting trying to get to the Joe Rogan status so <laughs> I'm gonna keep reminding people Great. Cheers. Yeah, Thank you. See you again. You. Stay hi to Marina. Jim, nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. I think you're, are you recording still? You